the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. April 22nd, 2021. I guess we first noticed it last week with the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations defaming the United States as having having woven racism into its founding and thus its present. (coughs) Now it seems there's no need for a redo of the 2009 Barack Obama apology tour around the world. President Joe Biden, his vice president, and the U.N. ambassador are all in daily rhetorical sync, apologizing for the United States, or at least flagellating it, or so it seems. I cannot, though, get over American leaders seeking their task and seeing their task as their as uh, seeing as their chief task defaming their client, their country, before the entire world. Just two days ago, Kamala Harris said this, quote, America has a long history of systemic racism. Black Americans and black men in particular have been treated throughout the course of our history as less than human. Black men are fathers and brothers and sons and uncles and grandfathers and friends and neighbors. Their lives must be valued in our education system, in our health care system, in our housing system, in our economic system, in our criminal justice system, in our nation. Full stop. Close quote. Well, who disagrees with this? Vice President, please meet straw man. But why the continual statements that America has a long history of racism? A, do we? And B, compared to what? What would you say about a country that sends 360,000 of its own men to die in order to liberate slaves and the country from slavery? Would you say that's a racist country? Kamala Harris also said of the Chauvin verdict, quote, a measure of justice isn't the same as equal justice. This verdict brings us a step closer, but the fact is we still have work to do, close quote. It's an interesting fallacy that I don't think has a name for it just yet. The witnessing of fact after fact after fact after fact, only to dismiss all those facts in order to propose a series of measures of your own to theoretically address that which you just dismissed. Perhaps it's called invincible ignorance. But what I'm talking about is you see incident after incident get resolved with great due process, and then you hear Democrat after Democrat saying there is no due process. So we must radically transform or defund the system in order for there to be due process. You can say hands up, don't shoot, and that Michael Brown was wrongly killed and targeted for his race. But no facts substantiate that, and hands up, don't shoot was never gestured or said by Michael Brown. Still, the name and incident will be used as as an example to teach us from on high that which we already know, but which the left thinks is novel, that To use Kamala Harris's words, black men are fathers and brothers and sons and uncles and grandfathers and friends and neighbors. 
Their lives must be valued in our education system, our health care system, our housing system, our economic system, our criminal justice system, and our nation. You know what? It dawns on me when I listen to Kamala Harris talk this way. It dawns on me. Perhaps she needs to lecture more in her movement, more in her party. We don't need to be told black men are fathers and brothers and sons and that they should be seen as nothing less than human. We see black men as human. They see black men as black men. There's an important point behind all this. And these lectures from her and from those who have nothing to say, zero, about the black fathers and brothers and sons and uncles and grandfathers and friends and neighbors in our major cities like Chicago who are murdered by non-police to the number of 177 this year today, to date, more than one homicide a day in one city, Chicago. Do those lives matter? Does the life of Muhammad Anwar, the Uber driver in Virginia who had his car stolen and got killed in it by two teens, does his life matter? Does anyone mention or think of it? Does David Dorn's life matter, husband, uncle, father, grandparent? What of the nearly 400 police officers who died in the line of duty last year? Whose lives are worthy of study and appreciation here? Who are the heroes in these tragic deaths? Whose names are worth remembering and whose less so? And what side needs the lecture and what side doesn't? I think we have most of this all backward and upside down, but we don't just need the U.N. ambassador and vice president from Joe Biden. Two days ago, we got this, quote, the verdict allowed the whole world to see the systemic racism that Vice President Kamala Harris just referred to, the systemic racism that is a stain on our nation's soul. Our nation's soul is stained by systemic racism, thus saith the U.S. President of the United States. Why would anyone stand for the national anthem if this were true? Our very soul, after all, according to him, is stained. I never again want to hear a protest from anyone in this administration when a China or a Russia or a Syria or a delegate from some other backwater backyard condemns the United States at the U.N. or somewhere else. The people in this administration have no right to protest. They wrote the scripts for our enemies. And as usual, the script our enemies have on us is a bad one. Just as every every enemy of America has gotten us wrong, so too is the latest indictment of America wrong. Though parroted by Chinese ministers, the Russian president, and our president and vice president alike. But the script has a lot of producers, a lot of investors, a lot of people vested in believing it, and others in believing in it. Quinn Hillier gets to most of this, writing the following. President Joe Biden is already starting to push people too far with his constant refrains about how racist this this country is. He is overstating a very weak case, and he risks becoming like former President Jimmy Carter when Carter's so-called malaise speech had the annoying effect in the insightful words of Walter Mondale urging the people to be as good as the government. The public and American culture are better than Biden says we are. He may soon see a backlash against him, not just for hectoring us, but for enlisting big government's might to promote and enforce 
his racialist agenda. Biden did it again Tuesday evening in his remarks responding to the three-count conviction of Derek Chauvin. He indicated the entire he indicted the entire American judicial system without proof by saying that accurate and just verdicts are much too rare and that Chauvin's just conviction was possible only because of unique and extraordinary convergences of factors. He said that systemic racism is a stain on our nation's soul while asserting without evidence that Chauvin's murder of George Floyd was the result of systemic racism. He cited that racism and racial disparities supposedly endemic to policing and crim- are supposedly endemic to criminal justice and policing. And he described a Manichaean, quote, battle for the wood of this nation, close quote, and harsh reality that racism has long torn us apart, close quote. Hillier continues, quote, his message seriously exaggerates the relevant grains of truth therein to start with numerous careful studies that actually show only the mildest of racial disparities in our system. Yes, more black people are arrested, but that stands to reason because black people commit more crimes on average, Hillier writes. Now all decent people wholeheartedly reject the notion that criminality is somehow a racial trait, but poverty, family breakups, subpar education, and numerous other factors, many of them, of course, perhaps even lingering effects of Jim Crow, play a role. The point here is not the why. The point is that the numbers do not lie about the what of criminal incidences, despite the narrative pushed by Biden and so many in the media. The statistics just do not show major racial bias in policing and convictions. The bigger problem with the media Biden-driven systemic racism narrative is not with the statistics, but with the labels that misstate the nature of the problem. Let us posit that racism means what for decades everyone agreed it meant, namely the assumption that people of a certain ethnicity will pose inherent traits such as character or intelligence by virtue or vice of that ethnicity. Particularly egregious racism occurs when the stereotypes involved are negative ones. Racial discrimination is what happens when people or systems act in deliberate or obviously implicit furtherance of those racist assumptions. By these simple definitions, anybody can be racist and anybody can act racially discriminatorily. But the obvious and horrific reality is that white racism and discrimination historically has been far more dilatorious to black people in this country than vice versa. There is no doubt that many of the systems and institutions, private and public in the United States, were racially discriminatory discriminatory against black people for hundreds of years. Yet that is an entirely different thing than to say that systems and institutions still discriminate this way. The reality is that the U.S. is one of the most multi-ethnic societies on earth, that in ordinary life, away from the media, it is one of the most harmoniously multi-ethnic societies in the history of the world, and guarantees of civil and human rights are stronger than almost any nation ever known to mankind. As every sentient American can readily see, Almost every instrument of government at every level, along with almost every leading cultural institution, not only has abandoned pro-white racism, but for half a century has consciously and, yes, systematically 
worked against it. Some indeed, an increasing number, have become not just anti-racist, but aggressively so, and more than a few have gone beyond that, systematically trying to right past wrongs and current inequities by using a reverse discrimination in favor of ethnic minorities. Today's racism, in other words, is absolutely not systemic or institutional. This remains true even though many inequalities and social ills are surely rooted in the institutional racial discrimination that existed in the past, but inequities are not racism even if they began due to racism. To say otherwise, as Biden does, is to misstate the problem and thus leads to wrong-headed attempts at solutions. Meanwhile, no fair-minded person would deny that racism and racial discrimination exist. But they exist in individual instances, individual human hearts and minds, probably within a far from insignificant minority of hearts and minds. Much of today's racism is clearly less overt than during Jim Crow and also less palpably physically burdensome than in the past as well. Piercing glances, rolled eyes, whispered asides can cause wounds to a psyche. Yet, where the racism does not show up in hiring public accommodations or in harassment by cops or anyone else, it is not within the government's expertise or just powers over a free people to try and fix it. Government has no business punishing thoughts, even horrible ones, or even their distasteful utterances. That way lies tyranny. The answer to racism lies in Intermediate cultural institutions that promote true tolerance, tolerance in its proper sense. In its proper sense, it means not some ideological attempt to browbeat people about their inherent guilt based on their race, but a simple respect for human dignity and difference, along with, quite crucially, an even greater emphasis on commonalities. Put another way, individual differences should be quietly respected but not dwelt upon while commonalities, human and humane, Unities should be celebrated. Americans, on the whole, are a good and fair-minded people, full of the compassion that made huge majorities recoil at the video of Floyd's death. We need no collective scolding from the bully pulpit. What we need are better churches, better schools, and better political leaders who are willing to tell the truth and shape a society into 330 million policemen. For right now, it appears we may never, at the rate we're going, be able to hire enough. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602 508 0960. Has anyone thought about the 4th of July yet? It's been brought up twice now by the President of the United States since January, once last month, once this month, in fact, yesterday. And he seems to think it's up to him whether we celebrate the 4th of July or not. Yesterday, uh, President Biden warned Americans they may have to cancel small outdoor gatherings on the 4th of July if there's a um, if there's a slowdown of vaccinations. 
Um, did you know this? More than 51% of American adults have received at least one vaccine dose. But Biden said at the White House that he's not yet comfortable saying people can hold small outdoor gatherings on Independence Day. Quote, back on March 11th, I outlined a vision of what America could, could look like by the 4th of July, an America that was much closer to normal life than that we left behind more than a year ago. To celebrate our independence from this virus on July 4th with family and friends in small groups, we still have more to do in the months of May and June. We all need to mask up until the number of cases go down, until everyone has a chance to get their shot. Back in March, he said people could host small outdoor gatherings if the rates continued to go down. Uh, so um, all I'm knowing is this. Regardless of what the statistics are, and I say that knowing that there is probably some statistic over which I would have pause here, but not a rational one I can see coming. Um, despite what the rational statistics I could envision coming be, I am planning to rocket this 4th of July, have a big 4th of July, and I hope everyone else does too. Um, we've got to play this mother in Atlanta. Oh, my gosh. We'll do that in a few moments, uh, maybe in the next segment. Did you hear this mother on masks and her school board? Fabulous. Fantastic. But the notion that Joe Biden can tell us whether we're going to have Fourth of July barbecues or not is really a very ironic thing when you think about the whole purpose of the Fourth of July, not only steeped in notions of liberty, but really in telling the overlords of government to buzz off. And now here we're going to be told by the president whether we can have Fourth of July or not. I was worried about Fourth of July 2026, which would be our 250th anniversary. I was worried about the state of our patriotism for how we were going to celebrate 250 years of independence. Um, we're already having problems uh, five years before that here, aren't we? Because we have gone on a year-long rampage, really longer when you consider the NBA. But we have gone on a years-long rampage, I guess is the way to put it, to make it so that the United States is not seen as something whose birth is particularly worth celebrating. There's an entire movement that thinks it wasn't 1776. In any event, it was 1619. What day? What, did, what day do the 1619ers celebrate? They don't. They cry all year. What, what, they, they, they cry all year, every year. There's no one day to celebrate or cry. They don't have a 1619 Yom Kippur or something like that. They confess their sins and beat their breasts. It's all year round. Well, we in 1776 land have a day. We have a day. And we'll, th we'll celebrate freedom very much. We'll c celebrate freedom. Thank you very much. And we'll do it regardless of whether the president says we can or not, regardless of whether athletes who make on average $20 million a year who come from communities of color tell us we're steeped in racism. We'll do it despite them not wanting to stand for the national anthem as well. Thank you very much. We'll just happily wish at some point that the gratitude we show to our founders will be found.
by you as well, because you've done awfully well here. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Tony is in Tempe. Hello, Tony. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. And also, thank you for your wonderful, grounded, sober monologue and past monologues. I just appreciate them so much. But anyway, I just wanted to take a, a slightly different angle on all this racism business, okay? Yeah. And I think at a deeper level, this is just basic human sin. The Bible says iniquity iniquity will abound and love will grow cold. And we know that's going to be magnified with the passing of time up until, you know, the end days. And we're definitely experiencing that. Um, People will hate you for the slightest thing, for the way you part your hair. Um, You know, let's look at women. I mean, look at what women have had to put up with. And by the way, the blacks hate the whites, okay? Look at the violence, the domestic violence statistics, okay? In your own family, the murders that go on and the abuse. Ad infinitum. I, I could take group against group. The Catholics hate the Protestants. You know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is a human sin problem, and it's systemic in every single one of our hearts. And as far as people who are well-behaved, okay, I don't care what your color is, these in this country are the best of times. I mean, look at the people of every race, of every color, that have risen to the very top. And I know, regardless of whether the industry, the business that you're in, we all have excellent friends, and we are colorblind. And even now, with all this tension and the stirring of the pot that the left is trying to do, um, I feel like if I jump on the bus and they're black bus drivers, I just feel an overwhelming love for those people, and I feel it back. And I make every effort to be extra friendly and to say hi and to smile. Um, And I want to encourage everybody to do that. Of course, I'm Christian, okay? And we are commanded to love our enemies. We are even commanded to respect, have pity. Someone is just a horribly behaved person, terribly troubled you know, everybody is at a different level. We don't hate them. We're not going to do wrong to them. We're going to pity them. We're going to have compassion. We're going to want them to do well and do whatever we can to help them to that end, which, by the way, does not include coddling and enabling and all that kind of stuff, okay? Everybody would agree with that, I think. So, anyway, my point is, we have to look at the glass as half full instead of, uh, no, uh, yeah, half full, half empty, well, whatever. And we have come a long way, and we still have a ways to go, but um, 
we just have to keep trying and we have to ignore these idiots on the left. I mean, do these lefties really think that they're not hateful and racist? I mean, it's just ridiculous. I don't think they do think they are. I think they think they are enlightened and helping helping to enlighten society and that to the degree they can silence uh, conservative thought, they are doing the Lord's work for peace and justice <laughs> and harmony. I think they think that, Tony. Um, really? The irony is, I think, I think the irony in all this is found in um, – what Kamala Harris said yesterday, um, black Americans, she said, and black men in particular have been treated throughout the course of our history as less than human. Black men are fathers and brothers and sons and uncles and grandfathers and friends and neighbors. I don't need that lecture and I don't think you do. Mm-mm. Here's what I think. I think we, for the most part in the conservative movement, has all, have always seen black men as human, as equally human. I think the left, the Democrats, have seen black Americans as not humans, but as black Americans. I think they've seen every minority that way. You can't tell me the name of one of the people killed in the Atlanta shootings that... um, that uh, that uh, that were aimed at uh, at massage parlors. All you can tell me is that they were seven Asian victims. They see the race. We see the person. I, I'd like to pursue this when we come back, Tony. If you can hold, I want to ask you a couple more thoughts for a couple of more of your thoughts. Anyone else can weigh in too. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Tony in Tempe was talking to us about uh, the racism isn't systemic. It's more human, as I understand your position, Tony, correct? That yes. every human has fallibilities and, and it's it's less system-wide than a problem of individuals. Did I pick yes. most of That's exact, what you said exactly what I'm correctly, saying. Right? Right. Now, you did say something I wrote down and I wanted to ask you about. You said racism or wrong is systematic in everyone's hearts. And that's a nice turn of phrase, but um, let me let me let me press on that um, because I think everyone has their uh, faults, sins, foibles—you name it. Um, but 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 in your case, Tony, uh, or in your friends' cases, talk to me about the racism in everyone's hearts. Is it in everyone's okay. hearts, or is it in some people's hearts? I, I think it is in the sense, and I don't know. If this is just a characteristic we have to protect ourselves, but when somebody looks a little different, has a slightly different culture, that sort of thing, we just kind of recoil. And I just think that's a real immature type of response. And I think if we can overcome that, and I think God wants us, not not only do I think, but I know this, because I feel so enriched by knowing people, and, and I've been student exchange down in Mexico, so I love the Hispanics. I've, you know, the black people, I love the black people, the Asians, I've got Asians intermarried in my family, um, you know, and on and on. So I 
in our, in our church is a very polyglot church. I mean, every, it's a Seventh Day Adventist church, uh, <laughs> but um, every, every representation is in there. Can it be taught, Tony, one way or the other? Can racism be taught? Of course. Can anti-racism? Can 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 it be taught to not be a racist? Well, of course it can, yeah. and that's why we have the commandments. Mm-hmm. That's why we have the instruction booklet from God on how to be human and get to and and get the most out of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, if one is brought up in um, in 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 a religious environment such as the one you're describing where we're taught we're all um, equal. Uh, I, I, I gather that's part of the, the lesson you're taking from your religious tradition. Um, we're all equal. Um, yes. yes. Uh, then, 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 it's, then it's an offense against God, really. Of course. To judge humans uh, uh, by their race. Uh, I think we could all agree on that. Yes. But but the question is when why why would anyone ever be a racist if it's from their youth taught to them, you know that they shouldn't be and that it's part of the church's teaching. I I guess what I'm struggling with is with is the notion of how widespread this is because I just don't think it's as widespread as the culture tries to tell us that it is. I think an entire generation below me grew up without thinking in racial terms in a generation that thought less about racial terms than my generation. And my generation was taught pretty well, I think. I was raised pretty well. I remember my cohorts pretty well on this stuff. Okay. And I think the generation above us probably had it a little harder, frankly. In other words, I think each subsequent generation since desegregation, whether we're talking the 50s or 60s, each subsequent generation has had less racism in it, in its individuals. Polls bear this out, you know, willingness to marry someone from another race, willingness to have someone as a, in another race in your neighborhood or as a friend. Polling bears that integration has, has, has led to less racist sentiment. So right. I, so I guess, I guess the question I'm having and, and what is irking me so much is when you think about that progress and you think even about 12 years ago, maybe, Pick a pick yeah. pick a number, but take twelve years ago. We just weren't this racially divided. We yeah. just weren't. It's I think racial division is being crammed down this country's throat yeah. um, in a way that it didn't exist. As Larry Elder would put it, the demand exceeds the supply. More people are talking about it than exists. Yeah, that's all I'm wondering, Tony. Is is if it's a lot less prevalent than you may think? I mean. You listen to you yes, listen to Hillary yes. Clinton. You think everyone has it. You listen to me. You think no one has it. But I know people have it. Well, I'm just like saying I, said, I never did, and I don't have anything to apologize for. Yeah. Okay. I'm just saying that we have come a long way, and of course, my mother, you know, she's German, and and she's she's racist. She's racist, and um, and so of course I'm in my sixties. Um, and, you know, it was all white in Scottsdale and whatever, and, you know, we had, you know, the Ragsdales, very wealthy black family, the only black people in my high school going on up. I remember that family, yeah, so, very close with Goldwater, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and they're still around and, and so forth. And um, so, and, and of course, I just hate the way my mother is, 
You know, but she's never going to change. And I know a lot of white people, she's in her 90s, um, that age, and I hate to say it, now nobody get mad at me, but it's prevalent among a lot of these white Aryan German people. <laughs> well, I don't know about Aryan German, but I'm not surprised that it's it's prevalent among an older generation. That's my point. I mean, that's part of my point. I think desegregation with each subsequent generation and civil rights acts with each subsequent generation led to less and less racism. But people from the generation, uh, when that all existed, uh, clearly they had, didn't have the benefit of a culture that changed. So I'm not surprised. Okay. I'm just not surprised. Seth, what I think we're talking about now is an underclass. You've got um, the inner city uh, people, I'm going to call them, because they're white. They're every single color. And this kind of poverty, and of course the government has exacerbated the problem, well-meaning, throwing money at the problem. You know, if you have illegitimate kids, you get more money. No need for a dad, you know, so they're out fornicating. Nobody's married. There's no dad. This is an underclass. This is not the general well-doers of our society, which include every race, creed, tribe, whatever you want to call it. The people that will do well and follow the commandments, honesty, you know, all of those things. They can go anywhere. Yeah, and this is a country fruit. that will reward that, you bet. Right, you right, bet. exactly. Now, I understand that it's really hard to break out of these kinds of things. Sure. I understand sure. that. However, the government has been exacerbating their plight. Well, I think throat. that's right. I think it's hard. To, how much time do I have, Bill? One minute. I think it is harder, obviously, to break out of these things. If you're born in poverty, it's obviously harder. If you're born in an inner city with crappy schools, it's obviously harder. It's obviously harder to be born and thrive in Beirut than it is uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. Sure, 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 Tony. But none of that difficulty is resultant from systemic racism or anything the government is doing with racist motives. It may have incompetent abilities. It may have terrible policies. It may have selfish politics that lead to less economic opportunity and worse educational outcomes. But it's not because of racism, I don't think. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Tim's in Peoria. Hi, Tim. Seth, how are you? Seth? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. Great monologue, as always. Thanks. It should be disseminated to classrooms throughout the state of Arizona, if not America. You're very kind. Thank you. That's my the, uh I take, I take uh, offense to Vice President Harris and her comments regarding uh, black men you know, with their, they need to be seen as human beings, you know, in the system such as uh, the judicial system, healthcare, and education. When I look at uh, education, because I'm an education hawk, it is the policies uh, drafted by Democrats, her party, uh, since the inception of the Department of Education and moving forward, and even before then, where we see that the black student of America was looked upon as being less worthy of a person for equal access, um, you know, 
know, equal resources in education. And it is the education system headed up by Democrats, a Democrat party, uh, that have failing schools in black communities all throughout the United States. Take Baltimore, take Chicago, take all of the inner cities and look at the failings and then look at the leadership. It is a Democrat party and their policies that have ruined education. And again, they don't empower the black student, whether they be male or female. So I take offense to what she said. Uh, Health care, racism, you know, it being systemic and all. Well, let's look at the systems that all that had racism since uh, before the Civil War and coming in. It was the Democrats that voted against Reconstruction. It was Sherman who wanted to advocate her advocated for 40 acres and a mule. And then it was Johnson who did away with that and, and said that 40 acres and a mule would not be uh, something that we're going to be going that was going to go to freed slaves. Reconstruction. We saw empowerment in freed slaves. Uh, all the gains that they got after the Reconstruction era only to be taken away by Democrat systems and politicians that were running them. Segregation in the military, segregation in the federal workforce, uh, Jim Crow, uh, again, segregation of schools, uh, unequal resources for uh, HBCUs as opposed to more prestigious white universities and colleges. The GI Bill, the GI Bill itself has a, has a, a ton of racism in it at, at one point because it gave unfair advantage to white veterans as opposed to the black veterans that were also, um, you know, able to use that benefit. So it's just, it's very offensive for her to say it. And I, I'm, I'm also offended that more people don't look back on the Democrat party and recognize their contribution to racism and the Republicans fight against it. Nicely said, Tim. Nicely, nicely said. They gave us this problem. They gave us this stain, and it was the Republican Party that washed it away. For them to bring it back now, certainly it's true to type. Certainly, certainly it's that. But it's something much more. It's something much worse. The use of race for the purposes of a revolution a neo-Marxist revolution in America, that's condemnatory. 